Welcome to Before the Ballot, a podcast series designed to educate voters before they cast their ballots this November. I'm your host, Elizabeth Donahue, and joining me today to discuss education policy is Jennifer Jennings. Jen is a professor of sociology and public affairs and a faculty associate of the Office of Population Research at Princeton. She is also the director of the Education Research Section, which supports research, publication, and teaching on matters relating to education policy and practice. Her research interests are racial, socioeconomic, and gender disparities in educational and health outcomes. Welcome to the show, Jen. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. It's great to be here. Um, So the school year is quickly approaching, and you can't turn on the news right now. We're recording in August without seeing um, how many states are really grappling with the issue of whether to reopen in the wake of COVID. Um, Many of them have a lot of different strategies to deal with the pandemic. Some have started up, some have shut down and have gone fully virtual, and some are doing a hybrid. So broadly speaking, could you address how K-12 schools are confronting the pandemic and any thoughts you have about the various approaches? Sure. So our knowledge of what's currently happening is still quite limited because it's literally moving under our feet. But let me say a little bit about what we know about what happened in the spring, and then I'll comment a bit on um, what's happening right now. So as you know, the American education system is extremely decentralized. um, So it's difficult to even find out what types of tools schools are using. Existing research definitely suggests that schools are making use of some of the same tools. So for example, we know that about half of schools are using Google Classroom as their primary tool and about a quarter are using Zoom. But beyond that really high level of aggregation, we don't know a lot. The things we do know about um, kind of disparities touch on the fact that schools that are serving more educated neighborhoods, and I mean by that schools and neighborhoods with higher levels of adult educational attainment in the spring provided higher levels of real-time instructional engagement, personalization of the process, and monitoring of kid learning. I, I want to note, though, so far we don't necessarily know how kids are experiencing that. So knowing what schools are saying on their websites is quite different than understanding what's happening on the ground. And just came out this morning that in New York City this summer, only one in five kids actually logged into summer school. So I think we're, we're, gonna, we're a few years away from really understanding how this you know, is going to play out. So you touched on disparities, and I'd like to uh, unpack that a little bit more. I mean, as you noted, there were disparities before the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Can you talk a little bit about how that unevenness will further exacerbate some of these disparities? So some of the best evidence we have on that comes from prior studies where we looked at summer learning gaps. So the idea that in a world with no school, and historically that's what summer has been, how do kids progress in their learning relative to when they're in school? And without a doubt, those studies really show that home environments for low-income kids are often not producing the same amount of keeping up the school year learning as are um, those of families who have many more resources to throw at that problem. And so I think it's fair to say that without some very substantial public policy action, um, we're going to see these disparities grow. And I I worry specifically, not only about, um, we hear a lot about academic achievement, but about disparities in children's overall well-being, about disparities in low-income kids who are supposed to be transitioning to college right now and may end up deflected from those educational trajectories and have trouble returning to them. So one of the things that there's been some reporting on is how higher-income parents are seeking to basically, in effect, create their own 
many school systems by creating what they're calling school pods, you know, where they're banding together with other parents and hiring in tutors and private instructors. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think this is a great example of like the importance of having a federal government and, um, you know, a central set of coordinating policies that level the playing field for all kids. So literally return to 1840, where, you know, individual families were having to put together their own schooling plans for their their own families, neighborhoods, etc. I worry tremendously about the unequal effects of um, these pods. I also worry tremendously about the career implications, particularly for women, of not having adequate access to childcare in this moment. And so I think in some cases, the whole pod issue has been framed as an example of families hoarding opportunity. And from my perspective, I see it as much more complex than that. What people are really responding to is the absence of federal leadership that both would have led us to a place of lower community spread, but furthermore would have allowed for the resources to return to school safely, such that families wouldn't have to be making these choices. So picking up on that, of course, K-12 is largely funded by states and municipalities, but you've you're talking about a federal response. I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about both what you think a federal response should be in this COVID era, but more broadly, what role you think the federal government should be playing in K-12 education. The key roles that are um, that are needed right now are, on the one hand, filling the massive holes that have been torn in localities' budgets by the declining economy. Um, and historically, in times of recession, for example, during the Great Recession, there was a federal relief package um, that we call ERA. I actually don't even remember what it stands for now, but played a very large role in allowing schools to both maintain their teaching staffs, even as they still had to lay off a great many teachers. And so I think plugging the initial hole is is one strategy that's been used in the past. The second issue that we're facing, though, is that unfortunately, because of high community spread, we're not in a place where I at least believe that we're safe to send kids back to school. I, I think there are very few places where um, we are actually in that position. And so given that that's the case, I think that we need to be making investments in things like infrastructure, by which I mean the internet, basic technology, um, disparities that could be addressed with dollars. There have been a lot of proposals to start national tutoring corps that could enable additional one-to-one support, especially for younger kids. And so I think that there's there's a number of different pathways that we could be riding on And of course, just this morning, President Trump was reiterating his call for all schools to reopen. And his counselor, Kellyanne Conway, was just on the news, sort of not walking that back, but saying that, of course, they mean opening safely. But yet he has been very vocal about the need to reopen. And I wonder if you could address or speculate, I guess, as to why he's made this such a central political point. Certainly, that's the million dollar question, is that the administration's way of dealing with the pandemic has been often to ignore or minimize its existence. And so I, my account of what's happening here likely would be that trying to create the return to, first it was you know, bars and restaurants and now to schools, is working within that same narrative of 
everything's great. Um, like we're moving on, the world's moving forward. And so on the other hand, it is the case that kids have suffered and families have suffered tremendously under the incredibly heavy burden of being your kid's teacher, nurse, you know, the chef, all of these different pieces. And so I really would like to get kids back to school. Um, but I don't think that it's the case that it's very safe right now. And another thing that I'll say is a place where it is, I think, potentially possible is in New York City. My partner is um, a biologist and has been involved with helping daycare centers reopen. And over the course of the last four weeks that they've been doing this, and he's doing the molecular testing every week for all of the kids and teachers and parents, um, they've had to have at least one room shut down every week because of a concern around potential either exposure to coronavirus or symptoms associated with it. They've been lucky in having no confirmed cases, but I think um, watching the incredible labor that his team and the teams associated with the daycare are going through has really, I think, been humbling and realizing that even when there have been no cases, you still have a lot of shutdown and a lot of very unhappy um, you know, folks along the way. So, so given that um, states do have a pressure to reopen, as you said, not just schools, but childcare and I guess bars and restaurants as well because of economic concerns. Certainly, the states are, are facing down a recession. And of course, they all have balanced budget requirements, unlike the federal government. So if you were a governor in a state that was really facing increased pressure, what would you be doing uh, to ensure that your school systems didn't get hit uh, in a way that, again, would increase disparities and really hurt kids? This governor is now in a position with very few good choices. Um, you know, all all roads lead to a variety of different challenges. I think that I would be looking for certainly not cost neutral ways to address um, additional support for kids because I don't think those exist. But thinking of creative ways to use either remote volunteers remote folks that are out of college now and looking for a year off um, and want to do some work that they see as part of a national service effort and as a result aren't you know asking to be paid very high levels for it. Um, I think that mobilizing those kinds of local community responses, given the inaction of the federal government, is probably the best that we'd be able to do at this point. I think that trying to find creative ways to ensure that all kids have access to technology, whether that's mobile hotspots um, in kids' neighborhoods or that's finding ways to refurbish old computers. I think that this is going to be a very um, locally based shoe lover kind of effort that is going to need to happen in the absence of additional funds. I think the, and the other thing that COVID seems to be laying bare is how much we depend on schools really to be social service providers, be it, you know, providing food to kids or counseling or health services. Could you talk a little bit about that and where you see that going in the in this current crisis? One of our primary failings as, as a society has been, you know, essentially trying to paint over the, the multiple inequalities that we allow outside of the schoolhouse with a patchwork of services inside of the schoolhouse. And so I think Personally, the way that at least I teach education policy is education policy needs to be working hand in hand with other policies that affect the overall well-being of families and kids. 
Um, to provide a specific example, um, there have been many meal distribution programs on the part of school systems during this time. A few different places, I believe Michigan, perhaps Philadelphia, have decided to actually give that money back to families so they can purchase their own food and in doing so decrease the coordination costs. There are, I mean, there are other ways to go about this than um, delivering all of these services through schools. I think that concerns around poverty governance and you know our willingness to trust families to do right by their families with the resources we give them have really been bottlenecks in, in implementing those creative solutions. Presuming that COVID is not going to be with us forever, one hopes. <laughs> you know, you've been studying education policy for so long. So I wonder if we could broaden the conversation out a little bit to sort of how, you know, education policy in the absence of COVID, right? You know, there's been a number of things that have been tried either at the federal level or at the state level to try to diminish disparities among educational outcomes for children, you know, charter schools, school choice, you know, there was the federal effort of No Child Left Behind. I wonder if you could touch on a little bit about strategies for educational reform. So I think where I'd start is with a little bit of reframing of your question. Um, and this is indeed how we spend the, the first class session in both of my classes, Instant on Education Policy. So we hear this language around what works, but I encourage my students to ask the question, what do we mean by works? Like works for what outcomes? Works for whom? Um, and I think that over the course of the semester, we often come to a place of realizing that a lot of the debates that we have are not issues of not knowing what to do, but rather fundamental disagreement about um, the goals of schooling and how we should be allocating our time and attention between kids who come to school with various levels of achievement, um, whether we should be focusing on basic skills or more comprehensive skills, whether schools should be involved in civic or sex education, this wide range of concerns um, and, and our disagreements about how we should deal with them, I think, make it very difficult to um, build a really robust knowledge base about what works and under what condition. I think that in terms of the, the big take-homes from research, I think that any parent in this country could have told you what I'm going to tell you next. Um, so I think first, like we have not focused in the ways that other countries have focused on building a top-flight, best-and-brightest teaching force. We, on the backs of women, essentially, for yeah, the, until the last, you know, 40 to 50 years, had a group of very talented people who were trapped in a small number of professions. So I think some of the most important research in this space suggests that when we look at the top of high school classes in 1960, three in 10 of the top 10 women were going into teaching. Now it's fewer than one in 10. And the countries that have the most high functioning education systems tend to select very high achieving students into teaching, pay them and respect them well, you know, make their job sustainable in a way that we haven't done. Um, and so I think that, as I said, any parent could tell you that teachers are the, are the special sauce of public education. That is where everything happens. Do we know what doesn't work? Is there literature out there about what we just know? We have tried it and we just know it doesn't work. Wow. Uh, yes, there are an infinite number of things that, uh, by and large, have not improved the U.S. education system. It's a, an interesting thing to think about, about where to start. Again, it really depends on the outcomes in question. I, I think a 
good example, and I continue to be supportive of some level of class size reduction, is around, you know, the research on class size. And so in smaller studies, experiments, um, you know, researchers found that having smaller classes really was important for kids' early development um, in terms of their academic progress and did some work in close disparities. However, when we took that into the field, we didn't account for the fact that we now were going to need X many, many more teachers and that this was going to lead to kind of a race to the bottom in terms of the teacher supply. So giving an answer about a thing that we thought could work, but we didn't create the right condition, you know, for that to happen on the rollout. Holding kids back in school is has long-term negative consequences. That, of course, depends on context, on the resources given to kids when they are held back. But I think that would probably, in terms of key structural things that we do, something that largely has not led to positive outcomes for anyone. One of the things that Secretary DeVos has really, for example, is school choice. Mm-hmm. And that is a, a policy issue where there's often a, a political disagreement. What literature is out there on school choice? And I guess a, a second issue that often gets looked at is, is charter schools. And a third would mm-hmm. be a, a common core and no mm-hmm. child left behind. So these are sort of more macro policies. We have an entirely decentralized education system, and there are complex historical reasons for that. I I think it's fair to say that we would have much less variance in achievement and experience if we had a more centralized education system. That would be my preference. But I think that that's untenable in the United States. That's just surely not how I would be absolutely blown away if if that happened ever my lifetime or anyone else's lifetime. So in the absence of having centralization, we try to use like common standards, common assessments, common curriculum you know, in order to um, create some level of standardization. I think that those things, if implemented well, would be incredibly powerful, but they need to be implemented in the context of rigorous, careful rollout, ongoing professional development of teachers to make those changes in practice. And it's a it's a heartbreaker to me. I was very enthusiastic and, and still am about the Common Core, but I think, again, The linchpin of education policy is really on the implementation. The way that it was rolled out, I think, kind of has has poisoned the well, you know, for for a very long time. So just turning to the issue of school choice. So I think that the first thing to think about is what do we mean by school choice? We Charter schools are one form of public school choice. About 5% of kids currently attend charter schools. An equal fraction of kids attend magnet schools, which is a choice within the traditional public school framework. Private school attendance has actually declined an enormous amount over the last, um, you know, 15 to 20 years entirely kind of contemporaneously with charter schools rolling out. So in, in recent work that my co-author Manuel uh, Alcaino and I have done, we found that actually one in 10 kids in the charter sector is likely moving over from the private sector. So so just to, that's kind of the background just of what school choice can mean um, in, uh, in the United States. So I think it's difficult to to make a general statement about whether or not school choice is positive or negative. I think the folks who support it are really into the first principle of it, which is choice is an end in itself, period, as opposed to choice increases the outcomes of education systems. 
just to wrap up in line with the name of the podcast, if I'm a voter and education policy is really the most important thing to me as I go to vote, what is the single most thing I should think about when I walk into that ballot box? Given the roles that the federal government plays, um, one of my very substantial concerns about the Trump administration has been the way in which they've underutilized the Office of Civil Rights, which is a, a core function of the federal government. For me, I think um, that is really a central sticking point. And um, I think it's one that, you know, based on the Obama administration and candidate Biden's role in that, the way that they handled what we call the OCR, the Office of Civil Rights, was it was incredibly action forward. It was in, it wasn't just responsive to complaints. They ha- helped negotiate dozens of voluntary desegregation um, agreements. They addressed issues of school discipline. They addressed issues of um, transgender kids' rights. And so, I think that that's a place where we we do see um, a substantial difference. And I think um, you know the other issues are around funding, and it's difficult to predict given the contemporary economic environment how the candidates would actually be different. And this has been so interesting. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. Okay, and to our listeners, don't forget to vote. Go to vote.gov to register to vote in this year's election. You've been listening to Before the Ballot. This show is produced by me, Henry Barrett, with the assistance of Rose Huber. This podcast is intended to be informational only. It does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs.